welcome to Modern Anarchy, the podcast featuring real conversations with conscious objectors to the status quo. I'm your host, Nicole. On today's episode, we have doctoral candidate and marriage and family therapist Manny Dominguez, who is studying drug-assisted psychotherapy. Together, we talk about spontaneous mystical experiences, our shadow selves, and learning to decode your personal symbolic language. Y'all, this is a fun episode. If you're curious about the unconscious, dreams, what it all means, then this is an episode for you. Check in, y'all. I have been trying to pay attention to my dreams. I think everyone who follows the podcast would know that I am a little bit skeptical of all things woo-woo and spirituality, but there is a lot here to learn. And so I really hope you enjoy this episode and come away learning something new. Tune in. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. How are you feeling? I feel. Are you nervous? <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I am slightly. I'm. I'm not nervous in like what I want to talk about. Mm-hmm. I think it's more just like this is the first time like me putting my voice out there. Sure. Um, and yeah. it's like there's like I guess there's some nervousness behind like using my voice. Mm. Uh, yeah. 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 Could you say more? Yeah. It just. It's interesting though because. Um, I know I was referred to you through Destiny, who's also mm-hmm. a fellow doctoral student. And um, now we are doctoral candidates because we're done with coursework. Yes. So excited. So exciting. Yeah. Congrats. <laughs> Thank you. And um, yeah, I think uh, I think it takes some time to let that sink in that, oh, I'm, in now, I'm now an expert on something and that my voice has weight in mm-hmm. certain areas. Not that my voice didn't have weight before, but it's... Sure you know, with that title, with that doctoral, you know, candidate title, and that kind of portrays to the world that I am have expertise in certain areas. Mm-hmm, and for mm-hmm. me, as I want to say, like, for me as a, you know, queer Latino, you know, uh, student, like, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot to hold at times. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. That, priv- that, that privilege, you know, to own that privilege. Right. Yes. With all your intersecting identities and to have that privilege now with the candidate aspect of the doctoral, you know, certification and the credentials that, yeah, what does your voice mean? Mm -hmm. And what can it, yeah, what can it mean to other people? It has a different weight to it to a degree. Yeah, definitely. And so because of that, then it's like, what is the implications for what are you worried that maybe someone will take you the wrong way or maybe no not not at all it's just um it's just like i've been i've always wanted to do this like i've always Mm. wanted to to go out there and i've always just been waiting like for the right time right sure and i keep putting it off putting it off putting it off and now it's like okay like there's other people out there 
using their voice on certain subjects that I am more expertise in, but I'm not using my voice. That the, and and that's that's where the dilemma comes from. It's it's like there's so many people out there um, sharing information, and when it comes to some of these important topics, you know, for example, like my dissertations on psychedelic therapy or yeah. the use of entheogens, mm-hmm. and you know that's a very controversial topic, mm-hmm. and specifically because of the history of the war on drugs and how you know psychedelics were portrayed in the past and how they were used in a way that could be um dangerous to some so you know now with this new third wave you know we have a responsibility to be yeah respectful of the medicine and how we um how we use it in, in this 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 term during research Definitely, definitely. Yeah, I completely agree. It's a it's a whole novel, I mean, not novel, I guess, novel within our Western psychology framework. Thank God that we're getting finally to this point mm-hmm. of recognizing this medicine that has been around for mm-hmm. thousands of years, right, in other cultures. I'm thinking about what you were saying when there's people who use their voice that don't necessarily, they're not necessarily like educated or have the credentials to use that voice. But then to you, you're sitting in that thinking like, when is the right time for me to start speaking my voice? Yeah. Like, yeah. What are the conditions for you that you think would be the right time? I mean, it's, I mean, I, I wanted to accept this invitation. If I've been having invitations a, a lot lately. Um, sure. Yeah. Being, um, invited to speak at like a conference in Berkeley and nice, these types of things. Oh, thank you. And it's just, um, yeah, it's just I, I feel like the universe is just like pushing me out there. Like, mm. <laughs> like you're not going to do it on your own. We're going to do it for you. So, <laughs> um, so I think this is a good um, segue into that path. But yeah, I think um, a good starting point for us, I guess, would just maybe I'll just run through kind of like my my path and how I ended up here please please do okay now that I'm feeling a little bit better um (laughs) (laughs) yeah so yeah so my name is Manny Dominguez and as I was sharing I am a third year doctoral student at Pacifica Graduate Institute and I just finished my coursework so we are now moving into the dissertation phase I study drug-assisted psychotherapy I'm also a uh, marriage and family therapists out of San Joaquin County. Uh, currently, I work with young adults between the ages of 15 and 25 uh, with more of a severe diagnosis of uh, schizophrenia. So I work mostly with quote-unquote um, schizophrenics, which is interesting for me, but I'll, I'll, I'll circle this around. Yeah. But how I started here. So again, like I said, I am a queer, identified, Latino, uh, male Born and raised in Stockton, California. Grew up in private Catholic school. And yeah, mm. my, my coming to age journey was kind of um, confusing, right? You know, like being a brown body um, from a more traditional family in this you know institution of Catholicism, going to private school and, you know, coming, you know, and starting to, you know, navigate my identity, my sexual orientation uh, it was confusing because of all the religious, um, yeah, propaganda and all that yeah, stuff. Wow, yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. Wow, wow. That's how that's how it all started. Um, <laughs> yeah, and then um, a- after I graduated high school, I moved to Santa Barbara, and it was a total like culture shock. And I uh, started studying uh, religion and psychology, 
because I was fascinated. I was like, okay, so I am different than my peers and I want to know why. So that really started my journey. And I, and I did both. I did two different routes at the same time. I was on one hand, I was studying religion. And on the other hand, I was studying psychology. Mm-hmm. And for my bachelor's, I was mostly focused on biological arguments for like um, homosexuality. So I was okay. really researching, diving deep into like epigenetics, those types of topics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what what made me queer? <laughs> Trying mm-hmm. to find that answer. What made me uh, queer? Wow. On one, on one side. But on the other side, I was studying religion. And if I was born this way, then why is religion looking at me in a, in a negative view? So I was trying to hold both of those things. And, you know, I'm 18 years old at the time. So my thought was, like, I was worried that I would, I would be bullied eventually. And I thought, well, if someone wants to throw... Re- religion in my face then i should know about everyone's religions so i have some something to protect mm-hmm. myself with so i really started studying every religion i can get my hands on i studied like huh. judaism christianity islam hinduism buddhism jainism um Taoism, uh Zoroastrianism. like i was just getting into all the different uh religions yeah and it was um and i loved it and it was fascinating and then i started seeing more of these like patterns of these uh, prophets having numinous experiences which which will t- tie back yeah, later yeah, on yeah yeah so like so yeah so i was like fascinated with all these different religions and all these different prophets and like their stories about how they came in contact with the divine and how that experience happened so fast forward after college after my undergraduate degree which i made i ended up majoring in psychology and minoring in religious studies I eventually took a break. I took a break. I married my high school sweetheart at the time. So we had, our, you know, me and my husband um, kind of settled down. Uh, we moved back home, you know, did all the things that you thought you would want to do. Got the house behind the gates in a private, you know, community. We had the, you know, the Mercedes and Volvo in the parking lot. You know, we had the, uh, mm-hmm. we had our lab and our pug and, you know, we just had our, our like little life that we thought we wanted. And I really like one day came to the realization that, I, that something was missing in my life. And that's when, which I, I think you've heard this many times, you know, that's when I entered the, the, like my own dark night of the soul. And that's, that's when things got dark for me. And I ended up deciding to uh, go through a divorce. And during that period, it was really an underworld journey. Um, luckily, this all happened when I was about 24, 25 years old. So, so this is young, though. Yeah, this, yeah. Is, this, is, this is like three years ago. I mean, it's like eight years ago. Yeah. So yeah, eight yeah. years ago, I was like 24, 25, going through this dark night of the soul underworld journey, trying to figure out like, all right, you know, I thought I had everything that I wanted in my life, but there was something more missing. And... I started questioning everything. I started questioning who I was. And um, that relationship was about, I was in that relationship for about like eight years. So I was questioning things like, you know, what I like to eat. Like, do I really like to eat pesto? <laughs> like, do I really like to eat pesto? Is that just because my partner likes to eat pesto? Mm-hmm. Like, like people don't understand like, so, like s- these experiences, like really like you tear apart yourself, but it's, but it's, it's meant, it's, it's necessary, right? It's necessary to, to have a death, to be reborn and that's that's the whole you know that's the whole um underworld journey dark night of the soul kind of experience is like there's something needs to die to give room for something new to come out of such death 
so that process actually um, lasted about like um, it started the, the the darkest times were about three months for about 90 days and I was just yeah I was just in this very dark place mm. and then I really then I, I had what I can only explain as like a spontaneous mystical experience that really like brought me out of that dark place and kind of like shifted my focus yeah and this happened to be in the same time that i came across this documentary called the spirit molecule by dr rick strassman uh he is and he was the first professor in the united states to get approval to start studying psychedelics again um and that was in like, like the early 90s so after his studies he published this documentary in 2010 about his um, his research findings, mm-hmm. and they were just amazing. He was, he he studied uh, a chemical called dimethyltryptamine, also known as DMT. His uh, he was his team was so surprised by the subjective reports of all the research participants, how they all had very similar experiences of going to a place, and again, like from my previous research in religion, you know, it sounded very sim- similarly to. Um, the same numinous experiences, the near-death experiences of, you know, they felt like their soul left their body. They went to this place, and in this place, it was inhabitant. There's other beings there. They felt love and peace. It felt familiar, like they'd been there before. Some went up a ladder. Some saw a bright light. Some heard uh, hums, humming sounds. Some heard bells or horns. You know, it's all very archetypal when it comes to all these other religious stories. And then they came back from that experience which uh, a DMT experience usually only lasts about 15 to 20 minutes. It's a very short acting. Mm-hmm. And when I heard this, I was like, what the heck? Like I was so put off by, uh, in, a, in a positive way. I was like, there's a, you know, that we can replicate a near death experience by using a chemical compound that only lasts about 20 minutes. For me, that was a, a very huge, a very huge turning point in, in what I wanted to do. At the same time, I started reading works by Carl Jung. And um, Carl Jung was uh, a, a very well-known psychiatrist. Um, mm-hmm. um, you know, study, uh, started the Jungian psychology uh, school of thought, of course. But he was basically the first person to combine religion uh, with psychology. So his, his, his work is really spirituality and psycho- psychology mixed into one, uh, which di- differs from mostly all other schools, schools of thoughts. So here I'm at this point of my life where, you know, like my undergraduate was in psychology, my in religious studies, <laughs> right? Um, mm-hmm. And then here I am now going through this dark night of the soul. And now all of a sudden I come across this chemical compound that can basically create a mystical experience and a near-death, recreate a mystical or near-death experiences. And then also coming across Carl Jung. So I, I decided that I needed to go back to school. And that was really my entry point. And a side note, there, there's also a personal connection to this because uh, my mom is an um, addict. So, so my, mom is, um, my mom is an addict. I was raised by a single father. So I bring that up because in my mind, I was thinking like, what if we could give these people who are addicted to drugs or anything give them, you know, say like a this compound DMT and they have a near-death experience and they come back after 20 minutes and they want to change their lives. Like, what's the possibilities of us using this to heal people? 
and um and that's like that was the first thought i had at and again like you know this is very early on in my my educational careers for me to like that was the first thing that i thought of and that's the first thing and that was like my major motivation yeah. it's like, like like how can we utilize this to heal people in a more effective and efficient way right and um, yeah and could this save my mom yeah exactly yeah or could this have or save someone else's mom yeah yeah or can this help um there's so many you know so many other layers um now we we know that now because research has been rampant over the last 12 years but 12 years ago um these conversations were just starting again yeah so so now we fast forward and i i ended up going i looked up schools nearby i I'm, again i'm in california so i decided to go to john f kennedy in berkeley to study depth psychology or jungian psychology um my master's thesis was also on psychedelic therapy after my master's thesis I, it was recommended me to continue on for my phd because of how large my master's thesis ended up ended up becoming and so yeah so then i decided to go back to school and go to pacifica a graduate institute in santa barbara interesting enough it's a full circle because that's where i started out when i was 18 um <laughs> yeah. and, and i started out at the city college but going from the city college in santa barbara going to JFK and for my master's and coming back to Santa Barbara for my PhD. It's been a full circle ride. And yeah, and that's where I am at today. Amazing. Amazing. Oh, go ahead. Oh, you go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to say thank you for sharing your story, right? This, this whole journey, it seems like fate, you know, whatever we want to call it was kind of coming for you, whether you liked it or not. It was saying here, here it is. This is what you're going to study. All these little pieces along your way were like clues to getting to where you're at now, which is so exciting. Right. And and, uh, um, have you, I mean, have you heard of the term like synchronicity? Yes. Tell me more, but I want to hear what it means to you. (laughs) So yeah. So synchronicity is a, um, is a concept termed by Carl Jung. And he noticed that there are coincidences, right? You know, like yeah. throughout our days, we might we might have these occurrences that we feel like they're it's coincidence, coincidental or coincidences. But sometimes something might happen that seems like a coincidence as, at first, but as you look more deeply into it, is very meaningful to that person. So then it's like, what are the odds of this happening on that meaningful level? That's more like a synchronistic event. Mm-hmm. So when we have a, an event that seems like a coincidence, coincidence at first. But later on, we uh, feel like it's more meaningful than that. That is what would be called like a synchronicity or a synchronistic event. Um, and I bring this up because I didn't really, I, I didn't really go into what really brought me from my master's to my PhD. Mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't, I didn't touch upon that. I was writing my thesis, my master's thesis on psychedelic therapy. So, and I just want to go into that a little bit more, so you can kind of see like the synchronicities that got me to Pacifica. So initially, when I was writing my master's thesis. Again, I think there's a, there's a part of me that maybe, maybe there's a slight arrogance within me that thought like, like I knew everything I needed to know on the subject. So I started writing my, my thesis and I wrote about 33 pages, about, about 33 pages in and I got stuck and I had writer's block and I wasn't, wasn't moving anywhere. And so I go back to my professor again at JFK and he leads the class in this guided meditation. And this guided meditation was basically to um, help us with our res- our research phase. And so the the guided meditation that he uh, he led us through, basically what happened was he had us you know, all close our eyes, relax um, in our classroom, 
And then he asked us to call to a large table um, some ancestors for our own council. And so the idea was that we're going to invite our ancestors to to help us um, and counsel us in this guided meditation. And I'll just put like, I just wanted to like on a side note, I'm more of a skeptical person. Sure, <laughs> um, sure. I'm more, even though I went through this like holistic alternatives um, school, yeah. psychology school, I was, um, um, my background again was like uh, mostly neuroscience when it came to psychology. And um, so here I am doing this guided meditation, you know, thinking that I'm pretty much done with my dis- my, my thesis. I already have this like 33 pages written. I thought I was basically done. It was all figured out. And that I was just like, no, gonna graduate, like just like I was done. I felt like I was done in the process. But this guided meditation happened and he asked us to call in our ancestors. And when he did that, there was this lady that appeared in my mind's eye. And this lady, um, she looked native. She looked like um Latin Latin native. She had like I remember she had like like this braided pigtails hair with like black and gray strands. She had this like this um, more native Hispanic outfit, you know, regal- regalia type of thing. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. you know, I'm asking for this, these ancestors to appear to help me. And all she starts doing, she starts laughing at me in my mind's eye. So I have this lady that appears. And again, like I said, like I never had this experience before. Like I can't make this up. Sure, um, sure. Yeah. Not, <laughs> this is the first time for me having this type of experience. And she starts laughing at me. And I'm just like, okay, like, what's so funny? Yeah, like, what, what are you laughing hell? at? And, and basically what was communicated to me, I don't know how, but it was just like, oh, she was laughing at me. Like, you think you're so smart. <laughs> like, like, you think you're like, she's, she's like, you think you're like, you know, inventing something new or like you're, you're discovering something new. She's like, she's like, if you really want to know, you have to look back. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> and like, it ends. And then we, and then we, we group as a, as a cohort and we talk about what happened. But I'm like, who is this lady? <laughs> yeah. Like, who's this lady laughing at me? And why is she telling me like, why is she, like, why is she telling me to look backwards? Um, so I'm, I'm involved in one of these like family Facebook pages for my family. And after this incident, like, um, somebody posts a picture of my great, great grandfather and, um, and his mother. And so that's my, oh, no, so it's my great grand, wait, see, my great grandfather and his mother. So it's my great, great grandmother. And it was her. It was the lady. So there's a picture. Yeah. This picture appears and it's mm-hmm. my, um, great great grandmother and it's that that's the lady that appeared in my mind's eyes so i was like okay this is too weird and basically she uh after doing a little family research she was the last person in our family to be a part of the tarahumara raramiri tribe in chihuahua mexico mm-hmm. so that i had a lead i had a strand so i started pulling that strand so at this point this backing up you know at this point i was studying psychedelic therapy and um and my special one of my specializations were also in dream working Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. so those are my two and on top of that before you know just this is a side note but on top of that as well i'm also a runner um mm-hmm. i usually run about 10 miles a day which has always been you know it's yeah it's always been a, you know a, yeah, it's wow. it's always that's, and that's that's usually the <laughs> the response i get from my friends yeah <laughs> like it just like i've always been a runner and like i, I did track cross country and i just always been a runner it's always been my my self-care and i, I use mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. um to dissipate energy you know when helping my clients that's my self-care on the side so I can get re- renewed and go back to helping. Um, so anyways, 
I look up on, I go to Amazon, of course, and I Google like the Rarauri tribe or Tarahumara uh, from Chihuahua, Mexico, and try to see like what what kind of books can I buy because I need to like you know figure out like what's like, who, what, what's going on, what is she trying to tell me, and I find five books. The first book that I um, I pick up and I read basically it just like blows me away and, and and i'm trying to remember what exactly the first sentence was but basically it said it is common when a rara Mary greets another person the question they usually start the day with is um what did you dream last night mm. and that was the first sentence and i just like had to like i was i was yeah. i just had to put the book down and i was just like synchronicity number one mm-hmm. like and as I started getting more and more into into their um, their practices, I found out that they've been doing dream work and they've been doing what is called um, like jikuri uh, rituals or using psychedelic um, psychedelics in a special ritualized way to heal people of like different ailments. And on top of that, where, where most people know about this tribe, the Rauramiri, it's that it is common that um someone from this tribe who's a runner can run up to 200 miles in a session yeah 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 exactly Ooh. 200 miles so that's that's this, this, there's a book called born to run and there's actually um been research where scientists have flown out to uh do studies on this tribe because of you know why can these people run like you know you know, hundreds of miles without, um, you know, dying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and they they've noticed that with this tribe that their blood pressure actually decreases during these workouts, where most of our blood pressures increases when we work out. Theirs actually decrease, um, and they don't have the same types of, I guess, biological responses sure. to working out and long distance running. And back in the day, they were actually used to be the couriers. You mm-hmm. know, people would hire them to deliver like mail or packages. And because they can run for so long, you would hire them to deliver something to a different sit, uh, different town or village, and they would do these these long distance running uh, runs. Wow. So yeah, and then after that, I I, I returned to our, our family Facebook page and I asked a question because now I was curious. I was asking the question like, sure. who else in our family are runners? Uh, so I, I post posed that question on Facebook like, hey, who else in our families? Are runners and the responses that I got were just so synchronistic that not only many people responded that they ran, but not only that they ran, that many of them had high school records, state championships. They just got into it instinctually. They like their parents didn't run; they just like was drawn to it, and it's just it was just amazing. It was amazing to for these stories. I have uh, my one of my uncles. He he's, he runs city to city. He goes on these yeah. long runs. And it's like, where, where does this come from? And how are we drawn to these certain things? Why was I drawn to dream work? Why was I drawn to psychedelic therapy? Right. And, and this whole, and I, I returned to my, my master's thesis and it went, my page, it went from like 33 pages to a hundred pages, just incorporating the fact that, okay, we are looking at these plant medicines to help us heal psychopathology in Western medicine. However, there's all this history that's been there for thousands of years that how are we, why are we, why are we reinventing the wheel? And I know we started this conversation about like our, our voice and finding our voice. Mm-hmm. But, um, when I went to Pacifica for my, you know, I'm at Pacifica for my PhD. My, uh, topic now is finding the intersection between, um, Western and indigenous perspectives on using entheogens and psychotherapy or to heal. So I'm trying to find that intersection 
And it's just interesting because when we talked about, you know, like I'm trying also trying to find my own voice on this subject. And it's just curious after this whole experience that I am also physically the intersection. I am, I am, I'm, I'm yes. from the tribe and I'm the first in my family to be college educated, but I'm also going to be the first in my family to be a doctor. And wow. like, why, and why was I brought here into this time and space mm. in this subject? And I think it's for me to highlight this intersectionality between, again, Western and indigenous perspectives when we're talking about using plant medicine and, um, and psychotherapy to heal. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so that's a long winded story of how I am here today, um, with you. <laughs> yes. Yes. And what a journey it is. Look at the smile that's on your face, right? I mean, that's coming from all these steps of, yeah, synchronicity, these moments, you know, when you look back and see that, yeah, this was all planned for you before maybe you even knew, right? Um, and so I'm so excited for you and so happy that you're on this journey, right? And I mean, that took even from that initial step of when you were in your marriage and feeling like something was lacking to listen to that voice then and not to ignore it and squash it and push it down. It took listening to that and changing everything. Yeah. 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 And the thing is like at that moment when you take that switch, I'm sure, you know, you can't really know where you're going to land. Yeah. Stepping into the unknown. Yes, 100%. But to get to this place now, we feel like all of this was almost in line for you. And it's just, exactly. I, I hold that duality knowing that, you know, when we're in that beginning place, it's so like, yeah, where am I supposed to go? Is this the right step? And, you know, even along the way, there's that question constantly. And I'm sure it still comes up even at moments now, right? Where you're like, is this still the right? But when you look at it, all of these other pieces were coming together to make this path for you. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, and, and I think that that brings us to um, the question of my uh, dissertation. And the question is that, you know, we know that entheogens or psychedelics, we know that they are effective at healing an array of mental health concerns. We know that they're effective at healing depression, anxiety, PTSD, uh, addiction. And we know that we have all the research mm-hmm. studies coming out now, you know, with us, um, with with all those results. And my question really was, why, why mm-hmm. are they effective? Um, like how? Like like my my question, my question entering into this project was, you know, like what makes it effective? Um, sure. How can other therapists or healers? Where can we find that information of like you know how can we make you know what what makes um, one healer or sitter or shaman or mm. therapist more effective than the other? And to get there, we have to understand how they are effective and yes. what is going on. And that's where my path started. And as I dive, started diving deeper, um, and I'm, um, I've, I'm pretty sure, like, you know, I'm sure you've heard, like, the idea of our shadows when it comes to, like, Jungian psychology, but in according to Carl Jung, like, you know, every person has a shadow part of themselves, you know, right? You know, we're born, um, in his eyes, we're born whole as a child. And as we get older, uh, we learn what parts of ourselves to kind of repress so that we can fit better into society. The issue is that those parts of, our, of ourselves that we repress, we're losing a little and little of ourselves every time we do such. Um, in indigenous language, we might be talking about soul loss. 
um, as we are losing parts of our soul, we become sick. And the same thing with us in Western medicine, as we repress more of, of ourselves, when we put more of ourselves into the shadow, we become um, unbalanced, mm. um, especially if our shadow gets larger than our identity here, our ego identity. We can put so much of ourselves in the shadow that our ego identi identity is so small. Um, and that's where we might have extreme mental health concerns like psychosis. That kind of, that's kind of led me into, um, my working with those with schizophrenia. You know, I study dream work and, um, shadow work. And I've been, I was noticing patterns with my clients that, you know, those who say, for example, heard voices, the more and more we talked about the voices that they would hear and what they would say that I more and more realized that those were shadow aspects of themselves that they repressed the negative things that the voices told them were actually things that they believed about themselves, but they, mm -hmm. but they've been repressed so much that now they are being um, experienced as if they are being spoken outside their heads to themselves, mm -hmm. but it's really unconscious material surfacing. And that's what Carl Jung believed too, that the difference between, you know, someone that's suffering from psychosis and uh, someone that's maybe more higher function is, is that the person who's suffering from psychosis cannot integrate unconscious material. The, the unconscious material is coming up from, um, coming up and unconscious material comes up as a lot of things, but a lot of times it's images, you know, you know, um, images is like symbols and those types mm -hmm. of things. Uh, a good example of unconscious material is dreaming, dreaming life. When we have a dream, that dream is unconscious material. It's um, stuff coming from ourselves, but it's not accessible from our conscious sure. egoic perspective. And why this is important, this is important because um, with when I was uh, with my studies with psychedelic therapy, I started noticing another a pattern as well is that what is psychedelic therapy? What is it really doing? Um, what is what is what's the function? What's 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 going on? And the more and more I'm, I'm looking at the research and the more and more it shows that what's happening is that. Instead of going to therapy for 10 years with a therapist, instead of going to, you know, say most people, you know, get have a therapist, they might do talk therapy, for example, let's say someone's suffering from PTSD. They might go to a therapist maybe one time a week, every every week. PTSD is very hard to uh, um, work with because of the situation being so traumatic. As soon as you start talking about it, our defenses go up. So it's very hard to do progress in a, in a, in a quick, uh, efficient way because... Mm -hmm. Every time a therapist touches upon something yep. and the client's um, PTSD is triggered, their defenses go up mm -hmm. and then, then, then the session has to move or go to something else. It's, it's, it's a constant, constant like touching upon it, walking away, touching upon it, walking away. And that, that can take decades. It can take, you know, at least 10 years to, to, to see like progressive change. Yeah. But the nice thing about psychedelic therapy, what it does, it's, it literally turns off the egoic defenses temporarily. For like that, say for psilocybin, maybe five to eight hours. And what's important about this is that the ego is really the person that's controlling the unconscious material. But when the ego kind of takes a break, all that unconscious material just like erupts. And that being said, and this can be very overwhelming for some people, right? You know, we talked about people talking about having near death experiences. That's the ego, you know, disappearing temporarily or, um, and not all, and not all experiences are super pleasant. They're, they're, I mean, I, the shadow is not pleasant. The shadow aspects of ourselves are very uncomfortable. And we hear a lot about like bad trips or uncomfortable situations and things of that nature. 
this is like this this whole all this research was was coming to that point of like okay so if psychedelics are releasing or the egoics hold on unconscious material and all this unconscious material is erupting how should the therapist that's facilitating the session what kind of training should they have mm. in order to work with the unconscious material effectively yeah um and this is very important because when we talk about the unconscious mind, and I, I can the, the best way I can like kind of explain it is like if we talk about I don't know if you ever seen that movie Inception. Yes, yes. Yeah, about you know dreaming mm-hmm, and um, mm-hmm. the dream. The, the the movie was about implanting dreams and how you can, how people can implant dreams in someone's subconscious, and it can like become something in their conscious awareness. Mm-hmm. Well, it's very similar when we're talking about psychedelic therapy or even hypnosis, right? Um, that's why most people who practice hypnosis and psychotherapy. They usually like record the sessions for um, legal reasons because when you're working on this level of the subconscious, it can be dangerous, right? Um, just like when we're working with someone's dreams, right? You know, if you have a dream and you come to, for example, say if you you come to me as a as a, as a um, client, and I'm here with the title doctor, and you, and you share tell me a dream, and I t- and, and I interpret it to you and 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 you believe me because i have the doctor title you might make choices in your life based upon my what i said the reason why i bring this up though is just because of how how much responsibility a person who is working with clients undergoing this type of treatment there's, there's a lot of responsibility because you know working on this level can be extremely dangerous and harmful if not trained in a proper way Mm-hmm. Um, and that's and that's where I'm going towards is like you know what kind of training should someone have when when working with unconscious materials, symbol symbolic yeah. meaning, and those types of things, shadow work, and those types of sure. um, yeah subjects. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I am so so delighted for this conversation. I think because in my own form of synchronicity, mm-hmm. um, each year we have to go to a different training site. I'm sure maybe you do something similar where you have to do clinical hours at that mm-hmm. site. Um, and so I just matched for my site next year on Monday of this week. And I matched at a site that does ketamine assisted psychotherapy. In what city? Uh, in Chicago. And Sorry, so, okay. yeah, I was like, when am I going to get to talk about this on the podcast and say that I'm doing this sort of thing? And then here you are saying, yeah. we got to talk about what therapists need to do this effectively. And I'm like, that's a great question. What do I need to know? You know, before obviously I'll be guided by, you know, the, the yeah, doctors there but like this is a great question for me no. because i'm gonna literally be doing this work come this summer yeah yeah so it's and, and, and this is um and this is a very important piece mm-hmm. because again like in these sessions no matter if it's someone bringing a dream or someone having a psychedelic therapy session the images and experiences that are released by the unconscious are symbolic to the individual that's having the experience. For example, again, if you're the client and you're having and you're bringing a dream into the session or if you're the client and you're having a psychedelic therapy session, everything that comes up from your unconscious, it's in a language specifically in your it's like every image and symbol is coming from your unconscious, so only you can really know or have any kind of say so what those images actually mean to you. How can I say this better? Yeah, it's your own um, subconscious language, it right? Is, like it it's, is. it's a code of symbols. It's, exactly, it's exactly. Your own, it's your it's, web dings, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, and, and, and I look at it as um, 
I look at look at it as as yeah, like 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 there's a message that's like in, there's a me- message that came out in all these different images. Mm-hmm. And as a therapist, all I'm doing is trying to like go with the client, and we have to go through the whole codex, and we have to get every single image that came up, and then I have to ask the client like, okay, what do you associate with that image? And once we get that association, that's kind of like a a, a word in the puzzle. Yeah, I've got a question. So when yeah. you remember your dreams, do you like when you wake up in the morning, do you have like a visual memory of your dream that you I mean, can remember when, these images from or like how? No, like, I mean, like I, when I say like, for example, like I wake when I wake up from a dream, yeah. um, my my dream journal is on my desk. Okay. So I mean, I'm, I'm a nightstand, so I'll grab it and I'll write down the dream. For example, say like I dream of a lion. Yeah. Right. And then if I go to a, then I, then maybe I might go talk to someone about it. And the, what I'm what I'm saying though is like no one can tell me what that line means, but um, only I know what that line means. I just have to remember what it means. So mm-hmm. this it's really an act of remembering. Just like everything, like all the images in your subconscious, they're your images. Um, so when you, so when you come with an image, say you have an experience, and you and when you come with an image, only you can tell me what it means. Uh, what because and and you might have forgot. So my job as a therapist is try to help you remember what you associate with that image. Sure. That makes sense. Have you heard of aphantasia? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you're so interested in neuro, or yeah. well, you come from a neuro background, yeah. I wanted to bring it up because that's what I have. So I have mm-hmm. no mind's eye. So when you mm-hmm. tell me to bring someone to the table, it's a completely black room. There is no okay. ability to conjure up any images. Okay. Yeah, which is such a fascinating aspect of my identity, who I am, because then when I think about my own memories, I've got none. Mm-hmm to look at in my head. Um, so I'm curious, yeah, well, even when you're talking about images here, like what images, if you don't have one, then is yeah. it? It could also be, um, like, again, it's like, I, I mean, I'm using the word images just because yeah. that's like very common in, um, um, just depth psychology. Yeah. 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 But like, yeah. but, um, but it can be like, again, like it can just be writing down when I write down my dreams, I don't like draw a picture. I, sure, I don't see sure. it like that. I write down basically like what I can remember of, the actual uh, what happened? Yeah, I, okay. I write down like the storyline. But mm-hmm. also, I, I'd be curious to just like I, I would also be curious though, like if you've um, if you ever like if you ever had as maybe like a entheogen experience, and did you have any visuals? None. This okay. is the thing that I've been talking to people about because okay. just talking about having bad trips and other things, I get no visuals like that. I mean, obviously the room might be a little wavy or colors might mm-hmm. be a little bit more. Um, strong, but I when I close my eyes, it's still black, nothing. Which I wonder if maybe that makes it easier for me to deal with, you know. Then how about dreaming? Like dreaming, like do you have dream recollection when you wake up? Yes, I do. And from what I understand, I dream in, in images because I remember seeing people and things happen and stuff. But the second I wake up and I try to remember, it's all it's all black. It's just like a feeling of the storyline, the plot, and that's kind of how I remember life, right? It's mm-hmm. a plot for me. I don't have like visual memories. Okay. So yeah, that's that, that's great. I mean, like again, like I, when I wake up, I will record with my dream, and it's basically the storyline. Sure. Yeah, like like scene one, this happened. Scene yep. two, yep. this happened. Scene three, this happened. Which I can start doing. And yeah, yeah, that, which, that's what I do. And then I usually, um, the way that we practice is then we'll go to someone else because it's hard. Because once you wake up, your ego takes over control again. Mm. So that's 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 why it's so difficult. We dream, we have unconscious material come up. Yeah. And then when we um, when we wake up, our ego takes control again. So we can't. Re- it's very difficult for us to just know what those things are. So 
the way we practice is we use a second person, a second person or a group of people. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm trained in both. I, I'm trained in either doing dream working by Jeremy Taylor, which where we use like a group of people. I also trained in um, dream tending by Steve Eisenstadt, where it's more like a one-on-one. But anyways, the other person would then basically, you know, as you shared the dream, the other person would write it down word for word, what you said, and then they will start asking questions about certain things. Mm-hmm. So like if you dreamt of a, like, again, like a lion, I would ask, okay, so tell me like, um, when you, when you think about a lion, like what comes to your mind, what, what comes to your mind? What do you know about lions? Do you have any memories of a lion? And we just like, we go through that whole, you know, we go through your mind and to see what your associations are. What, what you associate with a lion would be very different than what I associate with a lion. Mm-hmm. So like for me, I might say like, Oh, Christianity, Jesus Christ, the sun god, Aslan, Chronicles of Narnia. Like, you know, like I might go down a different stream versus you might go down a different stream. And this is, and this is where, um, unfortunately, this is where like these dream interpretation books, they miss. They, I mean, I I don't recommend them, but if they, if they work for people that, you know, they're good for amplification. Um, it's another process, but they should probably be used after the process of a personal association. So like usually I would ask the client, like, you know, what does the lion mean to you? And mm-hmm. after they kind of find their personal associations, then maybe I might look for an amplification. Like, okay, well, it's interesting that you said this. This is another, you know, so it just, um, I just bring that up. So, so we do that after we record your dream. Yeah. We look at all the, uh, everything that comes out in your dream. We'll circle different images. We'll associate those images to your own personal, uh, life. And then, it's it's interesting, but eventually a story or something will come, a message will come out. Something will come out. There'll be some kind of synchronistic story mm-hmm. or thing that comes out. And all of a sudden you might be like, okay, that's odd that now I, like you, eventually what we call like an aha moment. So like after this process, throughout the process, there might be a moment where you might have this aha recognition of like, you remember what it means. Mm-hmm. And it's because someone else helped you um, go around those egoic defenses to kind of like to withdraw the meanings behind these unconscious material. And, um, and it's the same thing with, um, psychedelic therapy. You know, you might have an experience and then it's not. And then the most important part is the day afterwards where you meet with a therapist and they help, uh, what we say, like make meaning of the images or whatever came up, the meaning making process and the integration process of what came up. That's what's going to uh, create like long lasting change. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. From what I understand of what, you know, the protocols are for like a more like modern medicine way of what they're mm-hmm. trying to, what compass the big, you know, yeah. corporation is trying to get the patent on is like, yeah, that process of keeping your eyes closed, covered. And so at that point, like images are coming up for people, right? I would imagine mm-hmm. who don't have what I have. So then, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's, it's learning like what that coding can mean to you, because I think that also makes sense to a d- part of me is skeptical first acknowledging that second part of me is like okay that kind of makes sense because a symbol symbolic language i think when you made that distinction between like a book that says this is what a lion means versus hey let's ask you with your own lived experience what does a lion mean to you i think that's a really big distinction it's not like you're just saying like all dreams can be understood through this it's more like what is your brain trying to make sense of through this and through using a symbol that means something to you. And so like, yeah, that your subconscious language there. Yeah, exactly. And um, there's so much to talk about on the subject. So it's so hard, but I mean, <laughs> yeah. because, um, because my fascination was when it came to these medicines, the psychedelic th- uh, medicines was how does the same medicine 
know that one client wants to quit smoking and it will give that client images that's going to help them quit smoking. But then another client who suffers from anxiety will, um, will ask the same medicine with their intent for help to, to, uh, to alleviate their anxiety. And their, and that client will have different images that will surface for them. And then I have a third client that has depression will ask the medicine that their intent is to alleviate their depression. And they will have even different images that surfaces for what they ask for it. So my question was like, how does the medicine know your intent mm -hmm. and what you want to alleviate? And how does it know what images it's going to take for you to alleviate that? And that for me, that was like the first signpost to like, there's some type of intelligence mm -hmm. in this medicine. I mean, just that, that like, like, why is the same medicine given to different people for different reasons? How does it know what you're asking for it? What intent you're sharing with it? And how does it know what images it's going to take to heal that part or reclaim that part of your lost soul or your, or your, your broken fragmented psyche? Sure. Um, how does, how does it initiate that? How does it know? Oh, you want this? Let me release the floodgate on this unconscious material. And then, and then afterwards, you know, we have these high success rates of like 67% of people yeah, yeah. being cured of all these types of things. I mean, it's just, and so it's you're, big, yeah, go ahead. And so you're saying that all three of those people were cured or just the one, the first one, all three of them got the images that they asked for. Of yeah. Like, yeah okay. So like, and, and that's, and that's in the scientific studies right now is just that across the board, we're using psychedelic therapy for like, for all these different Yes, all these different, different things conditions. with high success rates, 67% mm -hmm, mm -hmm. success rates. So for example, someone who has treatment-resistant depression, which means that normal treatment or um, is not really working for them, yes. they're labeled as treatment-resistant uh, for depression, then they come and do a psychedelic therapy session one time, and they don't qualify for the same diagnoses for up to 12 months in just one session. Then, then, then we ask you know, the, uh, the people, you know, like, would you rather take you know, antidepressants every day for the whole year or just do one psychedelic session for five hours, one time a year. Yeah. Um, and so like, so the science is like, the science out, is out there. I mean, anyone can look these up. There's, I have tons of, of resources of like all these different studies. So we know that they are effective uh -huh. and we know, uh, we know that they work and, and people are out there doing that studies. And, but my, my studies are more like, how are they doing it? Um, like, how are they doing it? What's the psychological processes? And I'm looking at it, obviously, from a depth psychological lens. Sure. But then I'm also going to bring in my intersection of indigenous and Western perspectives to figure yeah. out um, what does Western medicine have to say, why and how these substances work on the client. And then I'm going to also research what does the indigenous healers say, how and why these work. Yeah, 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 definitely. Because I feel like my what's coming to me now when you ask like how does the plant know to give these images to these people my initial thought is it doesn't like that is giving the plant medicine a power that i think is really located within us and what we're setting for our intention yeah. but also saying that also i think would not be fair to the years of spiritual lineage and indigenous cultures that have a completely different take, right? And so like that, and I'm obviously coming within a very Western, you know, neuro lens. So I'm over yeah. here like, no, it's us. But so I want to hold space for the duality of both mm -hmm. those things. So I think it's a great question to ask. Yes. 
It is, and it's and it's interesting because like I, I'm the same way. Like I said, like yeah. again, like I am my my training's in Western medicine, so it's like it's the therapy. Yes, the, 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 and that's why it's called drug assisted psychotherapy. And most people would agree that the therapy is being assisted, and and, and I also agree with that too. Like I said, like the medicine is reducing the egoic defenses, mm-hmm. allowing us to touch into material that's more vulnerable. So it is assisting like the psychotherapeutic process. Which is interesting because normally, if you if you think of any other kind of medications, Western medicine would say the opposite, right? If you you know, like like Western medicine would say like, oh, antidepressants are more important, or like the medi- like we put so much power, praise, you know, whatever you want to call it. Like we we, we look at the pharmaceutical companies and say like, oh, you know, uh, we put pharmaceuticals and uh, above talk therapy um, mm. normally normally we will put like a psychiatrist yeah. and their recommendation and medications over like going to talk therapy or um you know talking to a you know a person which is interesting but now we're over here talking about drug assisted psychotherapy and we're saying like oh yeah it's, it's the psychotherapy part but yeah i i i follow you that uh, and i'm a, and that's why i'm curious like I wonder what the indigenous perspectives would have to say on this matter. Yeah. Um, and, and I already know, you know how they refer to some medications, like say ayahuasca, they, mm-hmm. they call ayahuasca the grandmother yeah. on the grandmother spirit. And you mm-hmm. offer your, what you need to be healed to the grandmother spirit and, you know, and then she'll, she'll heal that for you. So they would probably see it more as like the plant medicine, yeah. um, you know, mm-hmm. and the plants themselves having a spirit. But I think that comes from like more of that, yeah, that's a, the more like the different way of looking at things. You know, they look mm-hmm. at the environment as having soul and life yes. and um, spirits and those types of things, and yes. and that's very important too. Yeah. Um, and how about how can we find a middle ground between the two perspectives? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Have you seen Fantastic Fungi? I'm sure yes. you have. Beautiful okay, right, exactly. Yeah. Yes. So this was one of those big things for me with my neuroscience Western lens was like, yeah, like it's not the plant medicine. And then I think it was, yeah, I know. Then I sitting through that and seeing them talk about that the fungi actually share resources to nearby trees that need it more. Just even that level of sharing made me kind of take a step back to think, wow, there's so much here that maybe we just haven't been able to tap with the way that we're asking questions and the way that our scientific process, you know, mm-hmm. you know, quantitative methods, all these sort of things that kind of restrict other ways of knowing that we as humans know and can find out stuff. And now we're just starting to touch and to learn more about how, yeah, fungi are actually sharing resources and communicating with mm-hmm. other fungi yeah. and trees and connecting us. Like, there's clearly more here to this story than I think we understand mm-hmm. from our Western science lens yeah. currently. Yeah. And I think that's beautiful because I mean that's the that's the important piece of it. It's like there are other ways of knowing. Yes. And there's also other states of consciousness. Yeah. And I think we're we're finally revisiting these other ways of knowing in these altered states and we're using these altered states on, on many different levels right we you know we have you know psychedelics and mental health but they're also doing research because now they um they know that psychedelics can actually lead to neurogenesis we, before we thought that human beings were born with a certain number of brain cells and you want to protect them because you know you can't get them back and, you know, if you, you know, if you do this or that, you know, you might jeopardize some brain cells and they're never going to grow back. But now with research, we know that psychedelics actually can lead to neurogenesis. That's even leading us to more ways of healing. Like 
you know, how, what does that mean for those suffering from dementia or Alzheimer's, you know, like yeah. all those types of other things where like, this is fascinating. We also have those in the tech industry using microdosing uh, psychedelics to enhance creativity, problem solve, because we know that during uh, a temporary um, timeline of when your brain is under these medications or plant medicines, that um, we actually have an increase in neuropathway accessibility. Um, so we're having people using them more like a like a mind hack, right? You know, now we're using, you know, the, um, these plant medicines. They're, they're you know as like you know brain uh, like brain enhancements or um, some people even call them mind hacks. You know, mm. people in the tech industries in Silicon Valley, Valley are using these medicines to increase neuroconnectivity, creativity, uh, problem solving. All this, you know, it's just it's it's interesting where all of these pathways are. You know, where this where's this subject is moving towards in the current day today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, definitely, yeah. And I mean, I'm a big fan of the concept of microdosing. I feel like it slows down your life to a more breathable pace, where you can actually like feel the present moment, which I think is yeah so powerful for our creativity. And yeah, I mean, this, we are just at the beginning here of all the different ways that this is going to change how we understand ourselves. And I think the psyche, I think a lot of people who might be, you know, a little bit uncomfortable with concepts like the ego and shadow and all that sort of stuff. It's important also to remember a lot of this is language and it can be conceptualized in different ways, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. I know you're queer, I'm, I'm a queer woman. So like in my path, you know, like we could conceptualize my ego being something that tried to squelch my queerness because at the time it wasn't a safe thing. And so that was stuck in my shadow, something that ended up being bigger than me. And so there is, you know, naturally a discomfort with that because I'm not being authentic. That's more of like what the existential lens Mm -hmm. and the framework here is that, you know, Nicole, you weren't being authentic. The young man would be like, your shadow is overtaking you. And I think at the core of it is, yeah, these same core concepts of like, who are you as a person? Who do you want to be? And how society trying to control you in different ways and not let you be your authentic self that's more my existentialist lens but i think i think it's the same language different terms and i'm yeah this study here with psychedelics and altered states of consciousness i think is so right for the concept of spirituality and your Jungian philosophy so yeah i mean i'm so excited to see what your dissertation comes out to be and i want you to send all of those articles my way as someone who's going to be doing this healing work and does it personally i'd love to know yeah like how can i be a better you know person for conducting these things how can it be yeah more beneficial i'm yeah just so excited for you yeah and i'm excited too and i'm excited to just be a part of it um to be a part of it and be part of the the next wave of, I mean, I'm, I'm meeting yes. so many, um, other healers and my social media page, which is a querying therapy. It's on um, uh, Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm getting you know, a lot of contacts from other healers and therapists around the world saying like, where do I get trained? Like, how do I get into this? Where should I go? There's, there's not much information about like what type of modalities or schools of thoughts would be um beneficial yeah um for this work yeah for this work theoretical Um, orientations yeah transpersonal yeah i mean transpersonal yeah of course yeah yeah. um with uh stan groff i mean of course like he's which is yeah it falls under the depth psychology umbrella so yeah so like we're in an interesting point and i think all of us this uh, all these new waves of healers and people who are getting into this field 
um, we're really going to be like the next generation um, of guiding others um, into this work. Mm-hmm. And it's exciting. It's exciting and exciting. And, and I can't wait for hopefully everything passes for California legalization. I know the yeah. bill is up, up for a voting hopefully this year. Oh, it is. I, I, I'm not following yeah. California politics. So that's yeah. is it for the legalization of medical or recreational? I mean, most most of the the bills I've been seeing was for de- decriminalization. Oh, okay. Um, so basically, it just means that the, that the state wouldn't spend money on criminalizing or prosecuting people sure. for for these uh, for possessing personal amounts of psychedelics. Um, it doesn't mean it's legal. It doesn't mean you can like mass produce them and sell them. It's just uh, more the decriminalizing mm-hmm. personal use. And I think it's a, I think it's a good I think it was a, a very good way for good um, for, for, yeah, for the movement because yep. um, it makes sense right yes. like well, you know like we should have uh, autonomy over our own consciousness mm-hmm. and if we want to utilize something to expand the consciousness we should be able to uh, yes. and we should not only be allowed to repress our consciousness or, or alcohol, you know, that. alcohol or yep. Other things, uh, we should also, um, or, you know, pres- prescription medications, but we should also be allowed to expand it. Yes. Um, and I think, um, I think the decriminalization route is, um, is a good route to begin yeah, with. Definitely one of that first, first steps. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, to that whole journey. I'm, there's so much joy here that we both get to be clinicians in this space and kind of pioneer this. I have, I share yeah. that same excitement with you where it's just mm-hmm. like, wow, like how novel it is to be entering into this and, and yeah, bringing the truth of an, an indigenous practice for thousands of years, hopefully into our Western lens. And yeah, I think you're asking great questions of how do we honor that history, right? Not just whitewash over something that has been used for decades for healing, for humanity. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this has been really good. I've loved getting to hear your your passion and your enthusiasm. It's so palpable that this is something that you're excited to study. I do ask everyone on the podcast one closing question, and it is, what is one thing that you wish other people knew was more normal? And you can take that anywhere you want, literally anywhere. Yeah, I mean, we didn't, we didn't really get into it, but just um, a lot. I do a lot of work studying numinous experiences, and numinous is a term by Rudolf Otto describing when when a person meets maybe or has a divine experience or a meeting with the divine, and he describes such experiences as being like mysterious, fascinating, as well as tremendous. Tremendous. Um, there's 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 a an awness and fearfulness. That being said, numinous experiences or a meeting um, or experiences of coming in confrontation with the divine, you know, those types of experiences are very powerful. And, you know, and I think a lot of us have stories of such. um, And I bring this up because uh, they're really prevalent in dreams as well as psychedelic uh, sessions. And it uh, has been shown that when someone has numinous experiences, a numinous experience, those are very motivating for change in that mm-hmm. person's life. And I've been having a lot of people reach out to me to share their numinous experiences, but they um, they don't feel comfortable sharing it other people just out in the public or in their families or even friends. Yeah. Um, I think there's some kind of taboo of that 
that a religious or mystical or uh, numinous experience should only happen in within like in a religious institution, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you should only um, if you want a religious experience, you should go read a Bible. Um, if you want, a, you know, um, and I'm just using the Bible because I was raised Catholic. Sure. Yeah. Um, and even Carl Jung said this himself. Um, his dad was a pastor, and he's and Carl Jung made a comment of how sad it was that his father devoted his whole life being a pastor, but never had his own experience of God. Mm. Versus Carl Jung was kind of removed from the church, but he knew that he had his own numerous experience. So here he's just juxtaposing his experience uh, versus his father's experience, who spent his whole life in the institution, and yeah. and and that was his. That's kind of his, his his preaching is that, you know, like there are numerous experiences that happens in synchronicities mm-hmm. and um, in all kinds of different um, scenarios, and it's attainable for anyone. And we need to really start to like break down break down that taboo that you know we can have a spiritual experience outside of religious institution. Especially, I just bring this up because of my queerness. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of us don't feel safe in religious institutions. Doesn't mean that they can't have a sense of spirituality or a sense of connection with the divine themselves. Those experiences and connections are out there. And I would just, you know, if I could have anything normalized, it would be, you know, searching for that spiritual life, that spiritual connection in whatever way someone feels, you know, feels um, called to do so. You know, they yeah. could even be, you know, like like my church is running. When I go on mm-hmm. a run and I'm out in nature, that's my church. That's how I praise yeah. and give gratitude. Yeah. Um, and that's mine. That's me. Yeah. That's just what I do. Um, someone else might go into nature, go for a hike or go go swimming in the river like that might be their church whatever it is for the for anybody you know it could you know it could also be you know you know it could be all any anything but i'm just saying you know like i really would hope that one day we can really allow you know everyone access accessibility to a spiritual life mm. um without you know having feelings of taboo or yeah yeah definitely yeah right as you said that i was thinking every sunday i go rock climbing and i call it church and i've always called it church and i Mm -hmm. tell people this is church i get my community with my people Mm -hmm. i have my meditation i move my body and i feel energetic afterwards and i think coming equally from i came from a christian background went to christian school Mm -hmm. queer you know we probably had very similar experiences from this i think it was really hard for me to come to any sense of spirituality after having such a toxic experience that made me feel unsafe in my identity with this religious. So I really blocked out any sense of spirituality for so long. But I also think that what we define as spirituality should be what heals us. And I think that has a way bigger expansiveness than just like, oh, this religion or that. It's like, oh, you find that healing and it brings you energy, energy, beautiful, beautiful that is healing for you that is your spirituality and so that has been such an evolution for me to reconceptualize what does it mean to be spiritual because i think it does have such a negative connotation of being woo woo hippie not grounded in neuroscience sort of thing right so i love that you're bringing that up to normalize that and hopefully we get towards this this space of yeah more expansiveness in what we understand spirituality to be yeah yeah exactly yeah. I really want to thank you. I knew this was a big thing for you too, of using your voice for the first time. And so I just, I mean, probably not the first time, right? But like in a public platform, yeah. like we discussed mm-hmm. earlier. So I just want to say thank you so much. And thank you. Yeah. I hope you're 
proud of your voice when you listen back to it because you were so strong and shared so much wisdom that I think people will benefit from. Well, thank you for um, inviting me and onto your podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, then leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you're a part of the Anarchist community, then follow us on Instagram or nominate a guest for the show by sending in a letter to modernanarchypodcast at gmail.com. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.